electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear from venture capitalist Bradley Tusk, co-founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund that invests solely in early-stage startups in highly regulated industries. He joined us at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit on December 8th, 2021, to talk about potential state, local, and federal policy changes that may impact investments in crypto, SPACs, ESG, and startup companies in 2022. He shared his outlook for regulation in the year ahead and where he's putting his money now. Tusk spoke with my colleague Leslie Picker. Here's their conversation. I want to start just by getting your broad take on growth as a whole. Um, throughout 2021, we've seen valuations in sectors like electric vehicles, uh, in cannabis, um, in, in SPACs, not necessarily a, se a sector, but a product area, really just yeah, sure. see some tremendous volatility. Um, given some of the, the news, the macro news in recent weeks, what do you expect to happen uh, from here? Do you expect there to be kind of a revaluation in these areas given, you know, a potential for a higher interest rate environment? Yeah, I mean, there are really two, because I obviously think about this all the time when I try to figure out where to deploy capital into startups. And I feel like there are probably two competing trends that would at least affect when these companies start to hit the public markets and are available to, to retail investors. So on one hand, the good news is these are all high growth industries, right? We're just scratching the surface on what cannabis or crypto or sports betting or drones or any of these things can be here in the U.S. or globally. So on one hand, there's a lot of room to grow. On the other hand, private valuations right now, especially in the U.S., are just wildly inflated. Um, I, I think the main reason is venture capitalists have raised so much money that they then have to deploy it and they have to write bigger and bigger checks. And the only way to get away with that is to keep writing them at bigger and bigger valuations. So we often have the problem now that a company hits the public markets at a ridiculously high valuation and it ends up falling after it goes public simply because those aren't sustainable and supportable. So most of those areas, I think if you look at most startups, generally there's definitely inflation there and I think that's worth being concerned about. Um, but these are still areas that over time are gonna grow a lot. So how do you play that then, um, knowing what you know about kind of this bifurcation between the private markets and the public markets, and I'm sure a lot of the FAs out there are listening and feel this pressure uh, to, you know, explore the private markets. I hear that time and time again uh, from traditional yeah. public market investors who see, okay, well, the growth is taking place on the private side, which is why you've seen so much capital yeah. go into the private markets and kind of help create this whole dynamic. How do you, how do you get around that? Are there still... It it, it's hard. No, I mean, we, we, to we totally. So we, we confront this question every day. I think there's a few different factors to consider. The first is for us, this is our job, right? So we still do have to invest. And even though the valuations are going up, <laughs> there may be specific companies that we think, okay, 
this is too rich, we're just not going to do this. But overall, we're certainly paying a lot higher prices than we were even a year ago. So that's partly, but again, this is the world I live in, I kind of have to do it. Um, the second piece, though, is I don't have to get that many right to, to succeed. Because I do early stage, I'm looking mm. to underwrite my fund on every single deal. Now, I strike out a lot, right, uh, as, as any VC does, but when we hit it, you know, it can return the entire fund on one deal. And so I'm swinging for the fences all the time, but I can afford to be wrong 60% of the time, and my LPs are totally happy with that. So I, I think that if you are an FA and you're looking at the private market, it partly just depends on how much risk you're able to take with your client's portfolio, um, because I'm just by definition in a position to take a lot of risk and to fail quite a bit and still have really, really great returns. Um, but I see tons and tons and tons of deals. Uh, and I would say we invest in 1.4% uh, of the startups that we look at, and it probably results, results in us doing about 12 to 15 deals per year. Um, if you have that kind of deal flow and access and ability to take some risk, then yeah, I still think there's a huge amount of growth in the private markets to take advantage of. But you have to have all of those factors um, in order for it to make sense. Interesting. And as we mentioned at the top, you focus on areas where you believe you can provide value um, on the regulatory front. How would you describe uh, yeah. the, regula the regulatory front in the current environment? Um, have you seen any change in the new administration over the last year? Uh, is yeah. it more welcoming to startups or do you feel like it's a little it's a little dicey out there? Yeah, so the, the good news is the vast majority of tech regulation actually takes place at the municipal and state level, not at the federal level. And thank God for that. Because, you know, if you have to, in order to launch your new startup, pass an act of Congress, that's like hoping for a miracle, right? You, you can't base a, a realistic strategy <laughs> around Washington, D.C. So, but when you've got 50 states that you could launch in or 200 cities, you can come up with a kind of viable sequencing plan to figure out where you can get a pass now and where you build up to later. You can show proof of concept. Um, so there's a strategy that potentially makes sense. So, so the good news is Washington is probably not quite as impactful into tech uh, startup regulation um, as we might think. However, with that said, uh, look, the Biden administration is good for tech in the sense of it is much more pro-immigration than Trump was. That's really helpful because we need as many high-skilled engineers as we can get into this country. Um, and there's just more stability, right? It just doesn't feel like every day the world is turning upside down. And I think everybody who participates in the private or public markets wants and appreciates that. Um, on the other hand, at least towards the bigger tech companies, the Amazons and Facebooks and Googles of the world, um, they would probably say they wish Trump was still in office because they have a head of the FTC, who I think is, is very, very tough on antitrust. You see legislation moving in a Democratic Senate, setting new antitrust regulations. You see issues like Section 230, the Telecommunications Decency Act, which gives platforms uh, immunity from being sued by, for the content on them. Um, that may go away. Uh, right now, the U.S. does not have a regulatory privacy framework like Europe does. Um, that may change at some point. So I think that if you are really, really big tech companies, this new Washington is probably not so good for you. Um, but if you're a tech startup, it's fine. And I want to talk to you about crypto in a moment, because about a half hour ago, crypto execs uh, started speaking on the Hill about potential regulation on that front. But first, I yeah. want to chat about SPACs as a product. These are special purpose acquisition companies. Um, in my sure. time covering IPOs, most of my time covering IPOs, these were kind of these esoteric special situations, yeah. you know, for a company like Hostess to be taken public. Uh, now, 
very much in the mainstream. I think we've stopped even uh, defining them on air because people are just expected to know what a SPAC is at this point in time. You raised yeah. a SPAC, actually, um, IG Acquisition Corp. I did. About a year ago. Uh, how is that going? From what I can tell, no public disclosures of a deal yet. Um, what yeah. are you seeing so, out there so, with regard to the SPAC market? It, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll be kind of vague on the first one because I don't want to get in trouble with, with SEC or anyone. Um, but it's, it's, it's actually going pretty, yeah. pretty well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, yeah, without wanting to move the market one way or the other, um, yeah, I, I feel extremely good about where we are and, and what we'll be able to announce in, in the relatively near future, I hope. Um, but more broadly, because I've been thinking about this a lot, both in the way that we approach the SPAC thing and, and, and from a, a broader investor standpoint. And it seems to me that it's not that hard in some ways to define when a SPAC is a good investment and when it's not. And to me, the clear differentiating factor is it does the merger of these two entities, does one and one plus one plus one make three. If the acquiring entity, if the sponsors of the SPAC can provide more than just cash uh, to the company that they're acquiring, if they had real strategic value where you say, okay, this company is operating in Europe, but there's no reason they couldn't access you know, all 50 states in the U.S., and this particular sponsor group has the ability to open up those markets for them, that makes a lot of sense. So when you can just logically look at the combination and say, this plus this should ye yield a lot of really new results and a lot of growth, because of the strategic alignment and value, those are good investments generally in my view. However, the vast majority of SPACs are just money chasing money. Um, and as a result, you see wildly inflated values. You see almost every single SPAC now, once they, once they de-SPAC trading below $10, sometimes significantly below $10, you're seeing more and more and more redemptions. I think now people are expecting that almost 50% uh, of Warren holders could redeem. And so based on all of that, um, a lot of SPACs, I think, are not meeting the criteria that I just set out around, is there real strategic value? And I think instead, it's just people kind of FOMO, they didn't want to miss out on the SPAC craze, so they raised one, and now they're sitting there with a bunch of money, um, and if all they're doing is just competing with some other SPAC to, to provide the highest valuation, I generally stay away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. So what you described in terms of the value that a SPAC can provide, this idea that if you have maybe an operator as a sponsor or someone who has a certain expertise in the type of company that they're acquiring, yeah. then they can create that, that dynamic of one plus one equals three. Yeah. 
but that's really difficult to really pin down if you're an investor. What percentage of SPACs out there do you think actually have that kind of dynamic? Or would you say it's the a pretty small minority? Probably 10%, 20%. So, like, look, the reason, so my expertise, as we've established, is in regulation and politics and government, right, and how that impacts tech companies and startups. Um, so for me, the reason why I did this in, in the gambling space is very specifically because, in my view, the hardest part about the gambling business is not taking bets or the technology to take bets or the logistics of it. It's regulation. It's can you get a license to take bets in this jurisdiction and what types of bets are allowed to be taken in this jurisdiction. And so for someone like me who knows how to change state laws, run procurement processes, all of that, um, looking at companies where we might want to expand them into new markets makes a lot of sense. And that's where, to me, kind of a one plus one equals three. That's why I raised a SPAC in the first place. Um, so there are examples mm. like that. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Leslie. I, th I think it's probably like 10%. And that's why, generally speaking, you know, my advice would be to be really cautious uh, before you invest in a SPAC. That's really interesting, this idea, too. And, and I love your perspective on this, that perhaps the SPAC method is a good way for companies to go public that do have some kind of regulatory overlay to them. I've covered so many roadshows where there's there's this kind of binary sentiment from investors. Well, I really like this company, but if the government calls the whole thing off, then it's a zero from here. And so there's kind of this, this yeah. tug of war that takes place with regard to valuation, things like that. In the SPAC yeah. world, things are a little different because the merger is between two parties. However, and here's my follow-up question, we do see some concerning regulatory uh, headlines recently. You've got Lucid this week with the subpoena from the SEC. There's the SPAC yeah. um, Digital World Acquisition Corp that's taking Trump's planned yeah. uh, technology and media company public. You know, do you think there will be greater regulatory oversight over these SPACs in the yeah, future? And I, is that something I, investors I, should be worried about? Yes, I think there will be. I actually don't think investors should be worried about it in the sense that ultimately the regulation should be good for investors because it provides some differentiation and some protection so that a legitimate SPAC um, that is really saying, hey, here's how we can add strategic value through an acquisition or a merger uh, and really provide investors with more value is very different than someone just kind of using, hey, I'm a, a celebrity of some kind, so I've raised a SPAC um, and now everyone should invest in it. So I, I think greater consumer protection is needed. I think the SEC is right to take a look at this. Um, you know, by and large, most of the SPAC deals out there are not going to be improper from a legal or regulatory standpoint. That might not make them good investments, but they won't be improper. But it, it's a lot like crypto in some ways, which is here is this SPACs are entirely new, but sort of this phenomenon. No one quite knows what to do with it. It's getting a crazy amount of attention and activity. And we should neither try to put it out of business because it does provide a, a purpose and, and serves a value. But at the same time, um, we should make sure the consumers are protected. Okay, you brought up the C word, which is where I was going to go next, crypto. Yep. Uh, we mentioned I, I, that I, I figured we were crypto there. executives. Yeah. <laughs> You're good, good. Uh, that was prescient of you. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, we hear from crypto execs all the time that they actually want regulation. They want rules of the road. They want yep. clarity on where regulators and Washington's mindset is with regard to to this space. 
what do you think should be prioritized? Is, I mean, you're an investor in Coinbase. Um, I've seen you interviewed yeah. where you talk about how uh, you're not necessarily invested in the coins themselves, but you're more interested in kind of the infrastructure and the ancillary products that help support it. Yeah. Um, if you were talking to Congress today, what would you tell them with regard to the type of regulation that's actually needed and the clarity yeah, that could be useful in this space? It's a great question. And look, I, I think generally speaking, everyone in the crypto world, we do want regulation because we need something to separate the good actors and the bad actors. There's certainly fraudulent ICOs out there and things that are bad for consumers. And I think when you can't distinguish between which, which are legit and which are not legit, it delegitimizes everybody. So we're in Coinbase, we're in Circle, we're in some other crypto companies. Um, typically speaking, we invest, as you mentioned, in the underlying exchanges. I don't feel like I have a great sense in any given moment whether Ethereum or Bitcoin or any other coin is going to go up or down on a given day. Um, I do strongly believe that crypto is very much here and that the activity will only increase over time. And so investing in the exchanges to me makes sense because you're getting a fee on the tra transaction kind of regardless of which way the, the price is going. Um, so to me, that's more appealing than trying to pick the individual currencies, but obviously other people are different and very good at that. From a regulatory standpoint, it's a great question. So here, here's what I would say. I think there should be two main goals for the United States when it comes to crypto. Number one, protect consumers, right? So that means making sure that companies that are issuing ICOs that are, are not legitimate, that there's nothing really behind it, um, are held to much higher standards and prosecuted uh, when there's fraud. I think it's giving um, consumers more information generally about kind of how crypto works and what's legal and what's illegal. I also think it's giving the industry a lot more information. So if you remember uh, the exchange that Coinbase had with the SEC over crypto lending, um, it, you know, the SEC may say, yeah, we don't think you should do this for these reasons. But when you don't say anything and you're just like, oh, we'll just decide ad hoc how to regulate you, industries can't focus, can function that way, right? They need to know what the rules are. They may like them. They may not like them. They probably will try to change them in some way. Um, but you can't not tell them, right? So number one, protect consumers. Number two, actually put in the work and give the industry a certain amount of certainty and a certain amount of input so that they can plan for it, right? And they may or may not like any specific decision you make, um, but at least if you're willing to give them uh, a little bit of information that they can work with it. And the third though to me is there is a tremendous opportunity in this country to really make this the home of cryptocurrency. So while crypto by definition is a sovereignless currency, it doesn't adhere to any specific nation, um, China just banned it completely, which makes sense. An authoritarian government can do that. A democratic government cannot. Um, but that means those jobs have to be somewhere, right? So all of the mining jobs, all of the trading jobs, everything that goes into crypto, all of the companies, they should be here in the US. You know, crypto in many ways embodies that kind of American spirit of risk and innovation and kind of belief. Um, and so there's a lot about it that really fits our economy and our psyche really well. I think Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and Gary Gensler ought to be out there saying, how can we get as many of these jobs here? How can we build a whole industry here? And how can we use regulation to both protect retail investors and at the same time, encourage the growth of crypto in the United States? That's interesting. Yeah, you don't always picture crypto and think of that being a job creator, but you're right. If you have a whole economy right. around this area, there are definitely jobs to be had. Um, last question for you is just where do you see the sure. most opportunity right now? Yeah, it's 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 a great question. Um, so look, these are sectors that I'm excited about. I am excited about crypto. I am excited about uh, gaming and especially esports betting more so than regular sports betting. Um, I think that not only is there 
a huge amount of opportunity that will happen once cannabis is removed from Schedule 1, which really restricts interstate commerce and banking and a lot of the normal commercial functions. But I think psilocybin will be the next frontier, uh, and we're looking at that um, right now. And then beyond that, a few other things. One, we're heavy investors in digital health. Um, COVID, I think, proved to a lot of people that you can get a lot of your health care without having to go to a doctor's office. People vastly prefer that. Um, so I think that trend is only going to continue. And second, I think on fintech, um, this notion of DeFi and Web3, there's something there. Now, do we really know exactly what it is? No. Uh, are we always sort of making inside jokes about what, what Web3 is or isn't because it's all sort of a made-up concept? Yes. But fundamentally, the notion <laughs> of the creator economy, the notion of, of, um, of a DeFi system long-term, I think does make sense and will happen. That was venture capitalist Bradley Tusk. He spoke to CNBC's Leslie Picker at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit on December 8, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. Please rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit CNBCEvents.com to learn about upcoming events and how you can join us. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.